Hello from Cyberry and Delinea, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cyberry podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cyberry.it. From all of us at Cyberry and Delinea, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the 401 Access Denied podcast. I am the host of the episode, Joe Carson. I'm the Chief Security Scientist and Advisory CISO at Delinea. And I'm basically, you know, it's great to have another uh, returning guest on the show today again. And it's going to be absolutely a fun, uh, hopefully very educational episode. And uh, welcome to the episode, Tony. Uh, Tony, do you want to give us a bit of uh, audience, just a recap of who you are, what you do, and uh, some of the background? Sure. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here again. Uh, yeah, so my name's Tony. I um, can tell from the accent, I'm from the UK, born and bred in, in Wales, educated there. And um, I've been in the security space for longer than I care to imagine. It's getting on close, close to 30 years now. Oh, my word. Um, but uh, I've been in this particular area of privileged access management for probably 15 or so. So been around the block a little bit. Um, you know, like to think I know what's going on here, but Verizon always comes out to, to surprise us, doesn't it? But yeah, so I work at Delinea. Um, I'm technically a, a cybersecurity evangelist. My day job is with the marketing team, um, doing technical related content to help them uh, message to our customers and our prospects. So that's kind of what I get up to. Fantastic. And absolutely. And so, and today's whole conversation is going to be around the recent uh, Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report for 2023. Yes. And yes. it's always, it's one of those reports that we're all sitting on the edge waiting. And, you know, usually, we know it's usually coming around the May timeframe and are all waiting for that moment. Um, mm -hmm. And it usually provides us a bit of a, it's, it's almost like a scorecard into how it well is. security has done in the past year. Um, yeah. And, you know, one is, you know, definitely I want to, you know, you know, credit those uh, at Verizon who really, and also the, 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 the friends of Verizon also who make this report happen because it is such to do reports like this. Um, it's so intense. It takes mm. a lot of time. It's a lot of data to go through. It does. Through. Huge investment. Uh, so it, absolutely. It's a, and it, it, this takes months, you know, and, and, you know, it's a lot of data and contributions from, uh, from a lot of different resources. So I just want to kind of, you know, make a call out to, to uh, David Haylander, Philip, uh, Alex Pinto and Suzanne. Um, who really kind of are the team behind and, and make you know bring it together? Um, so absolutely, for me, it's you know it's a, it's a yeah. great resource for the industry, and it really helps us really uh, adjust our kind of <laughs> strategies um, in order to to deal with the threats out there. Um, so and and this the, the you know it's been going on for sixteen years. Um, Eighty one countries uh, participates in the mm. analysis of this. In the past, it was uh, they do have a separation between what's an incident and also a data breach. Uh, so this report looks at, I think it was just over 16,000 incidents and mm -hmm. also over 5,000, almost you know 5,200 data breaches. Uh, so quite a significant amount of data gets analyzed. I'm just interested, Tony, what, you know, what was some of the kind of, you know, what was some of the new things that they introduced? Because they're always introducing, you know, new elements or new kind of patterns analysis. Um, and what were some of the key takeaways that you find from the report itself? Yeah, yeah, I'll I certainly um, we can we can talk about that. I just want to point out though that that it's interesting. Some of the reports that I read, uh, they're all stats related and they can be very dry. But I like the fact that <laughs> the Verizon team injects 
little bits of humor into their report. So I always Absolutely. get a chuckle out of that. So if you haven't read it, you should read it. It's, it's, it can be quite entertaining um, as well as a little scary at times. But yeah, so it, it's funny because I was reading, as I, as I started reading through this um, mm -hmm. and I was reading kind of stat after stat after stat, I mean, some things just don't change, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like there there is a consistency. I mean, you know, credentials are still... Uh, the criminal's best friend and and consistent with prior years, it's still all about the money. I've got some little notes here with stats, but 95% uh, are being financially driven. So so that doesn't necessarily change. But I think we can still, you know, think of credentials as that fuel that kind of feeds many different types of attacks. So so we're not just looking at, at single use of, of anything. We're looking at, at, a, at a flow. So, for example, different types of attacks um, using credentials maybe at the start or, or credentials that are being used further down the chain, like with ransomware. But mm -hmm. And in turn, it can result in yet more compromised credentials. So you get this kind of cyclical effect. It becomes circular feeding off itself. But... Um, but yeah, so I mean, I'm going to harp on about stolen credentials because it's consistent with last year and they're still the most popular entry point for breaches. But I did a quick search um, also separately just to get a sense of how many credentials are actually available on the dark web. And obviously there's lots of varying numbers, but one of the big ones that jumped out is over 24 billion. So that's a huge number, right? So it's like... It's, it's multiple. It's, it's, it means that it, there's multiple yeah, credentials of everybody. <laughs> It's, it's, it's huge, but I think we all, I, I, my takeaway from that um, is that we all have to assume this, um, assume a breach. We have to take this yeah. posture of, we have to assume a breach uh, approach to security. And so things like zero trust and other best practices um, are important because they help you build your, mm -hmm. your processes and, and, and your security posture, assuming that a breach has already happened. Absolutely. But yeah, one of the things they really highlight in the report, and, you know, as a Ryan, absolutely, you know, some of the key components of data breaches uh, was definitely, you know, up there was number one was stolen credentials. Um, yes. Second came after was uh, phishing. And especially what they did mention, which was interesting in phishing and social engineering, was pretexting is also becoming a very popular mm. technique as part of the social engineering and phishing campaigns. And then the exploitation of vulnerabilities. Those were the three top ways of you know how the techniques that attackers were using and one of the things it did definitely mention is that you know you have the assumed breach you have to assume that your you know a username and password is not sufficient enough and therefore mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. did highlight and they did emphasize um some of the top you know uh, best practices and recommendations and they did highlight multi-factor authentication goes a long way it's not it the 100 protection it's not bulletproof <clears throat> it's not you know right, the, the complete right. answer uh, but they did mention, you know, the emphasis on, on multi-factor authentication does go a long way into protecting the organizations. I think the bar has lowered significantly for MFA. I mean, you know, several years ago, it was it, it could be pretty hard to get to get MFA in place. And I think the mentality has changed as well. And maybe that's been partly driven by, you know, insurance providers getting on that bandwagon and insisting that, you know, MFA be part of, of your arsenal. But it used to be that MFA was was tough. And not just in terms of the technology, but also because you have to think of things like MFA mm -hmm. as being multi-layered in itself. You can't just have MFA at one place and yeah. say, you know, it's at the front door and I'm protected. You've got to layer that in at multiple access control mm -hmm. points so that you have that that opportunity to, 
I guess, reassess or, or, or gain additional proof that that user is who they say they are. So again, going back to ransomware, if you've got a piece of malware that's trying to hop from server to server laterally, you may want to put you know, an MFA challenge in place um, mm -hmm. of one of those servers or even all of them if they're sensitive so that you can stop that, that malware in its track. So I think it's, it's definitely a critical element of everybody's arsenal today, Absolutely, for sure. Yeah. And one of the things, yeah. one of the big advancements I've seen is, is you know, how MFA is also trying to deal with the, you know, MFA fatigue, which is a big problem as well. Is you know that all of a sudden, if you simply just get this notification on your phone, and if it mm -hmm. just gives you the yes or no answer, um, right. people, you know, if you get it enough times, some people would just accept it just to get rid of the notification. Exactly. Um, and I like some yeah. of the methods that's been happening is that you know you must enter uh, the number that's basically been displayed on the screen into yes. the actually uh, uh, MFA response. And if you're not the person actually, you know, making that attempt, you don't have information on that number. So that's a good way, really good way of reducing the MFA fatigue down um, and definitely, you know, makes it much more difficult for that, you know, accidents and mistakes to happen. One great thing that I did find in the report um, is that the more alignment with frameworks, that was a big, big mm. improvement this year. One of the things that, of course, they aligned uh, with the Verus framework, which is all about mm. the vocabulary for event recording and instance, which really highlights into actor, action, asset, and attribute. Um, another great thing that I really enjoyed this year was much more alignment to the MITRE ATT&CK framework as well. Um, in these yeah. different sections, they did go into the details about here's the best, here, here's the attack techniques from the MITRE ATT&CK mm -hmm. framework. And then they get into the CIS, um, which basically is you know, the, you know, the, the security controls which you can apply to mitigate them. Um, and then using that ver vocabulary uh, for yeah. the Verus. Bringing those in was a really great um, you know, attribute to, to really providing much more information in each of those different techniques. Um, what was your thoughts around, you know, you know bringing in the MitreTech framework and a much more- No, I th definitely. I think it's a huge improvement. I mean, uh, you know, everywhere I go, I talk to people and they say, you know, it's it's tough getting security expertise to help us out in in either in in establishing our defensive posture or mm -hmm. or doing wargaming or whatever it happens to be or responding to threats. So there is definitely uh, a brain drain, I guess, and it, and it can be challenging. So um, it, it's great to have a consistent terminology, a consistent naming, a consistent way of sharing information amongst the broader community that makes perfect sense, mm -hmm. kind of like back in the old days when the CVE came around, right? So so this, I think the MITRE attack chain, I've been seeing that now being referenced in more and more tools that are being used in things like instant response, where they hook into that MITRE mm -hmm. framework and they reference it, and maybe even they suck that data in and they, they actually point to different yeah. techniques and tactics that are in the framework. But then we can all talk consistently about the challenges mm -hmm. and, and maybe how we actually respond to those challenges. So I think that's a fantastic thing. And clearly it's gonna, it's gonna continue in, in future Verizon data breach uh, mm -hmm. reports, but I think it's a win for everybody, it's cool. Absolutely. It really gives you to, to you know, it, it aligns with, you know, how, you know, the mindset of the attacker, understanding the common it techniques does. that happens in each of those areas, and then what mm. things you can do to make it more difficult. Um, one of the things I also was interested in as well as the report getting into uh, who was really, you know, who's who was behind, you know, who, who's the attackers, where's the attribution go to? Um, and it all kind of, kind of leverages some of those. And of course, we're starting to see much more organized crime, you know, software mm. criminals. Um, and they became, they were the number one source of the attacks. Um, and then there's a very few that actually get into the, you know, the, the uh, espionage you know, type of things where it was, mm. you know, nation state backed. Um, but, you know, we had to look at, you know, um, when they get into the details of all, of all those attacks, 
Uh, it included, you know, it gets into the MITRE tech, which basically says there's multiple techniques used. It's not just one method yeah. and that's it. Oh, absolutely. There's multiple yeah. techniques. And yeah. one of the things it was, they actually mentioned it was 74% of all data breaches, or all, sorry, all, all breaches included human elements, um, right. uh, misconfigurations, privileged misuse, stolen credentials, and or social engineering. Those were some of yeah. the most common techniques. Um, and really, that's where, you know, you have to look at, you can't just depend <clears throat> on, you know, reducing the risk of one of those. You have to do right. multiple. You have to do right. it equally and, and balanced. Uh, any thoughts that kind of around, you know, the yeah. types of methods used? No, I agree with that. I mean, if uh, so, I recently actually did a, a deeper kind of dive into the MITRE attack chain for a, for a white paper mm -hmm. that we're going to be publishing fairly soon, and um, you know, I I was a little taken aback by how many there are, and 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 I think of these people, these defenders in in organizations like our own. You can't go through everything, but you've you've really got to try and focus on your business and the types mm -hmm. of of sensitive information that you have and and where that might take you in terms of the mitre attack chain and then tease out so when when you're when you're trying to put together your own playbook to defend yourself you've got to focus on those techniques and those tactics that are going to be more relevant to your business and then practice them and then do wargaming and tabletop exercises to make sure that you understand what they may be so to your point right step in the shoes of the attacker um, try and identify what they're likely to be using. But one of the things that you mentioned, I wanted to to to, uh, to mention as well, um, and that is of the of the fifty two hundred or, or so confirmed data breaches, five hundred and twelve, ten percent were mistakes. And it may seem like a very small number and sort of fairly innocuous, but but um, but you can prevent those with things like privileged account vaulting. So taking those off the playing field, you know, taking full time admin rights away from from people that don't need them full time and also something that that's creeping in more and more which is behavioral analytics so maybe we want to mention that at, at some stage but that can that can help identify anomalous behavior whether it's adversarial or whether it's just a mistake um, and it can flag these things but um, but you know obviously it doesn't it doesn't um, avoid the need for training. So training, training, training um, is still uh, an important thing, the educational side of it. Um, and also given the fact that business email compromise is nearly doubled. <laughs> so how to one, spot yeah. those, but, but of course with things like ChatGPT and it, they're getting, you know, those emails are getting a lot cleaner and a lot more hard for, to spot. Correct. That's yeah. one of the things is that, um, so I, I, I recently did uh, some discussions with some government search recently, and I was interested <coughs> in what types of attacks have they seen on the rise? Um, and one of the things they did say is that, you know, the translation um, of the generative AI has made the phishing campaigns much more mm. authentic looking. So right. you know, we're used to be able to check for mistakes and identify common mistakes in those phishing emails that generative AI is making it so much more improved. And to the point where it's not Absolutely. just, it's not just you know, one and done, what they're doing with business email compromise and social engineering and phishing is it's a conversation back and forward. So the first couple of, you know, attempts may not include the payload. It might be the fourth or fifth or sixth. So what they're right. doing is over time, is they're having a much more, let's say, interactive conversation with you. And, you mm. know, and, it, and it's, it's not with a human, it's basically with a chatbot. It's and a bot. Ultimately, <laughs> it's a bot that's basically uh, determining on your response. Yeah. It's evolving yeah. its response back to you in order right. to ultimately gain your trust. 
And the yeah. more they gain your trust, the more likely it is once you get to that fifth or sixth or whatever uh, mm -hmm. number mm -hmm. that they eventually deliver the payload, that you're going to be more willing to trust that uh, response. Right. Um, right. And that's one of the things. And that's where the pretexting as well, where they're taking mm -hmm. on roles and different you know, personas and, and trying to get to somebody where you're kind of willing to, to, to trust and ultimately. Right. And I think when we look at business email compromise, it, is, it was the one that rose the most. Um, out of mm -hmm, all the different, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, motives and techniques used. And it also mm -hmm. was significantly financially uh, impactful to businesses as well. Right. Let's face it, those those execs have potentially access to more sensitive information, <laughs> especially financial than we do. Hey, I've got a stat that I, uh, that I read. I wasn't sure how to interpret this, to be honest. This was one of those things that I kind of read and I scratched my head and I was like, oh, that's, that's interesting. I'm not sure how or why. Uh, this is potentially what it is. So I'm going to throw a curveball at you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, so, so it said, it basically it said partner-initiated incidents. Um, in the previous report, partner-initiated incidents were 39%. But in this year's report, they're 4%. So that's a big drop. That, that, I was kind of looking at that and going, you know, is, are we talking about supply chain potentially where, you know, you compromise a weaker supply chain partner and maybe you hop in through their VPN or expose, but, mm -hmm. but going down from partner initiated incidents from 39% to 4% is a major drop. And I, I was trying to scratch my head and think, why would, why would that change be what it, cause that's trending downward clearly, but Absolutely. any ideas? I think one of the things is, I think, uh, if I understand correctly, did they change some of the terminology in, in this oh, one okay. as well? So I think one of the things that they did classify, if I did understand going through the webinar and the contents, that, uh, that it also gets classified as external um, uh -huh. as well. Um, so when you look at that, it might actually, you know, it, it might be very specific looking at third party, uh, but it is, it is concerning you know, that it would drop that much um, mm -hmm. in, in a year. Uh, and it's also important for the audience is that when we're always like the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report, when we're going through it, it is retrospective. It doesn't re reflect what we're saying right now. What it is basically, exactly. yeah. it goes from October uh, 2021 until uh, November 2022. So that's the period of the day. So when we're always looking at it's always the previous year's um, analysis. So it's always important to make sure that, you know, when we're looking at even though it is 2023, it's a, a retrospective report that we're looking back on things. Um, right. And also might, you know, when we're looking at that, that was also still a period where COVID was also highly you know, impactful as well. So you might not have got lots of consultants and third parties being able to make on-site visits as well. Um, so some of the things, you know, reflected. I think one of the interesting was, um, if you look at basically some of the data stats, um, when you see basically when COVID hit, I think it was the privilege abuse went significantly down because people couldn't get access to privileges um, uh, because they, they were working remotely and organizations right. basically had locked those down to being, you know, especially for financial organizations, you would typically have to be on site and, you know, at terminals to be able to access some things. So there was right. a significant drop in privilege abuse as well. But it'd be interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to actually go and analyze, analyze that one even further for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and of course, you know, I guess over the last few years, the big elephant in the room has been ransomware, right? So they commented on, on ransomware, but um, they see the, the numbers seem to show a steady state there. It was like 25% in the previous one. It's, it's still a quarter. I mean, a quarter is a big number. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it looks as though it's a steady state. But the other stat related to ransomware that they, uh, that they surfaced was that ransom amounts are lower but the costs of recovery are increasing. And they kind of speculated on, they, they didn't have a, a good answer. They speculated on it, but yes. it's, it's interesting. 
If you look, I mean, one of the things that was one of the things I was waiting to see was basically what was their analysis on ransomware itself. Because if you look at right. all of the a lot of the reports from 2022, including uh, chain analysis who basically analyzed the ransom payments or cryptocurrencies, one of the things we did see is that if you look at a lot of reports, there was actually a decrease in ransomware throughout that year. Right. Um, right. And what they did see an increase in the payments, um, which mm-hmm. meant that basically more organizations were, were, were still paying. Um, our report, we also saw that more organizations are having much better backup solutions and recovery solutions mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. they don't necessarily necessarily have to pay as well. But this was really interesting. You know, if you look at that spike um, that I think it was in 2020, you know, 2022 report, which was the previous year, showed a massive rise in, in ransomware, you know, to you know, compared to. I think it was the total was compared to all previous years together. That was a significant mm-hmm. rise in ransomware. Um, right. and, but then that segment um, showing the report basically showed a you know slight even off in steadiness, uh, for sure. So I think there's a lot you know a lot of organizations are one is doing better uh, at actually ransomware protection. So there's been definitely an investment for many organizations. Right, um, right. They have taken a stance on better backup and recovery. Um, um, some organizations, of course, have went down the path of cyber insurance. Um, in order to offset the financial costs of um, uh, ransomware. Uh, but it was interesting. It is holding steady. Um, and it, you know, I think for me, is you know, I think looking at all of the, the, the kind of types of t- incidents, I think business email compromise and ransomware for me are the two big things that organizations need to tackle yeah. right now. Um, yeah. Those are the ones that we, you know, ransomware is the most devastating from a business perspective uh, because it can bring the business to a complete stop. Uh, business exactly. email compromise is much more of a financial implication and because mm-hmm. it is about basically, you know, it's financially focused more basically right. ransomware um, is actually business focused, you know, and, right. and you get different types of ransomware, we, we, whether it being basically, you know, disrupting the service, encrypting mm-hmm. the data, stealing the right. data, um, right. you know, disclosing the data. There's, there's it gets right. into various, you know, uh, different types of uh, stages. Um, so yeah, for me, I think triple extortions. Exactly. And it gets that's the most devastating, I think, the most impactful. But those are two things that organizations need to tackle. Right. And I think this is, you know, it's an equal opportunity devastator. It's not just large organizations, of course. I mean, one of the things that Verizon kind of speculated on was that, mm-hmm. you know, that that a lot of the attackers are potentially going for smaller entities as well so while they have less money to hand over in terms of a ransom there's a lot more of them um but um it also may be that the smaller organizations have a lot more technical debt Mm -hmm. and they don't have as much to invest they have a lot more technical debt and that can translate to a greater kind of recovery cost so you know perhaps uh an obvious takeaway from that is that don't think ransomware is is only for big companies right it's it's (laughs) it's 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 an equal opportunity threat. Absolutely, for sure. everyone's so. a target when it comes to ransomware. Um, I think Absolutely. one of one of the things we've seen, of course, some of the ransomware gangs would prefer to stay, you know, uh, low profile, stay stealthier, mm. you know, not get a, a a target because what we've seen is the the bigger organizations you target, the more visibility you get from you know the FBI and the governments around the world, and they will come after you. Um, mm. And and that's what we're seeing with some of the larger ransomware gangs, you know, um, that have impacted whether it being universities or, you know, hospitals or local municipalities and, and governments right. um, that they have put a target on themselves and the governments are going after them now. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's why, you know, these the criminals, they want to target the SMBs. You know, there's money to be made uh, for them. They typically yeah. don't have a, a dedicated security person that might actually only have a handful of even IT resources, if even. 
Um, so it gets into the point where they definitely need to make sure that they're doing something. And security, you know, shouldn't be a luxury. It should be something that's available to all organizations of all sizes. Um, they should not, you know, be something that they have to make a decision whether they should have it or not. Um, and mm -hmm. so we need, we need to get over, you know, that's where security, we, we talked about in previous years where I think it was uh, Wendy, uh, Nather had talked about the security poverty line, you know, that security mm -hmm. should not be something that should be only affordable by the big organizations. Right. Um, that there's, you know, they need to bring it down so it's affordable and easy to use for companies of all sizes. And that's something mm -hmm. that the report highlights. They did have a whole section on the SMB side of things um, that really showed some of the best practices. And I think one of the top three things, if I go down to the top three uh, recommended pr uh, practices they had uh, for SMBs, uh, which was really interesting, um, it was uh, around making sure that one is a, uh, a good backup strategy, um, mm -hmm. security awareness training. So mm -hmm. uh, the, the top one was security awareness training having employees right. much more better trained. Um, second highest recommendation was data recovery. Um, and uh, that's, a, you know, it's not just about data recovery, but also data, uh, basically, uh, segregation, data security, you're making sure that even if you do become a victim, that the attackers don't have access to ability to, to, to encrypt right. all your data online. And then the third right. one was access control management, which is all about making sure you're rotating, managing passwords. You've got multi-factor right. authentication in place. So those course, are the top yeah. three recommendations that they had for SMBs. Um, and those mm -hmm. should be, you know, all SMBs should really make sure that they prioritize uh, and take those types of recommendations uh, seriously. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think a lot of organizations, they, they don't have unlimited budgets, right? So they have to make choices when it comes to security controls. But, you know, the, the writings on the wall here, given the fact that credentials are so predominant in the attack mm -hmm. chain, that, that protecting access to those credentials, um, going to a least privileged security posture, mm -hmm. zero trust, whatever it is, your, your favorite best practice, it all suggests that, that, that with a limited budget, you should prioritize on perhaps beefing up your identity-related protections. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, actually one of the things that, that surprised me, I, I guess it surprised me a little bit because, um, you know, usernames and passwords, credentials, obviously hot commodities, but elsewhere I've read that um, there's a big increase in the use of stolen session cookies to kind of mm -hmm. bypass the need for credentials altogether. So I was a little surprised that that didn't factor into, into the report this year. Maybe with pass keys becoming more prevalent, maybe that will factor in yeah. next year um, because, you know, hopefully credentials will start to disappear. We all hope, but, you know, yeah, they become they, digital, there for digital the keys. Digital keys exactly. is what we need to get to, which is basically, exactly. you know, it's, it's, you know, the old method is the username and password, which has been the traditional thing. Uh, and of course, you know, getting into SSH key management is always sometimes very difficult to, to manage and maintain at a large right. scale. Um, right. And this is where pass keys have been the big topic. Um, mm -hmm. And it's all about what it means is really is about moving much more of the, you know, the authentication into the background or where mm -hmm. it becomes much more, you know, better and easier to um, have multiple devices across multiple applications. Right. And right. It, when you look at it, it's the segregation between authentication and authorization. And this is where you get into things like, you know, really good single sign-on. You get to FIDO, uh, you know, uh, basically frameworks and, and, and uh, you know, implementations, which then has a strong pass key uh, for authentication. And then you get into having privilege access security in the background, which is then mm -hmm. for the authorization side of things. So right. absolutely, we're in a world where, you know, it's no longer about, you know, provisioning and managing devices. It's all about provisioning and managing access. And right. that's what the new perimeter is, especially when, you know, organizations are quickly transitioning to cloud environments, you no longer control that traditional, you know, 
you know, let's say the firewall of perimeter. Um, you right. basically are moving into the, the public internet and therefore you have oh, a much better way of securing using that, you know, <laughs> using that network. Yeah, and the, the the security providers have had to adjust, obviously, to that because, um, you know, I mean, the whole point of a virtual private cloud where you're standing up, mm -hmm. you know, Windows and Linux instances to run your business applications is that that needs to remain private. So if you're poking holes in your firewall to allow, you know, sort of uh, external tooling or, or, or mm -hmm. security controls that are historically on premises, for example, to try and protect it, you're, you're opening yourself up. So, so all of the vendors, ourselves included, have had to adjust to that new paradigm and make sure that we can, we can work in a kind of a modern, efficient and effective mm -hmm. hybrid uh, cloud environment for our customers, for sure. But, uh, but yeah, and this also gets into one of the things that was actually I, I, I didn't see in the report, which was around API security. And oh, right, the, yeah. And, yeah. You know, and, and that's, you know, and also a much more emphasis on cloud security, because in the previous reports, um, <clears throat> they did heavily talk about how cloud was becoming a bigger target than on premise. So mm -hmm. that was something mm -hmm. I was really interested in, but it really yeah. didn't go into any of the details about uh, hybrid cloud or API mm -hmm. security. So that was what I was missing from the report. One, yeah, one that's that a was, good point. Yeah. yeah, one thing that was highlighted, which was interesting, because uh, the period that happened uh, that this report was in uh, also included the log4j vulnerability. And of course, mm. that was a massive impact for the industry. It was. And one of the things that was really interesting was is that when they you know get into the analysis of log4j, was that they would have expected to see it you know being abused all year all, all year round, but they highlighted basically within the thirty days of the release. Um, that's when basically, you know, the 30 days of that vulnerability, that was the actually top uh, period of using, you know, exploiting that vulnerability. Um, mm -hmm. And then basically the meantime organizations got was around 40 days of patching it. And hmm. therefore, even though there was lots of scanners out there scanning for it, um, that basically organizations had reacted very quickly to mitigating right. and patching that vulnerability. Um, so basically that, you know, it was the, the, the month to two months after Log4j basically, you know, was exploited, mm. that right. that was the high impact time. And then afterwards, organizations become much more uh, defensive against it. I think that's a good sign. I mean, because it, it, it tells me that organizations are being more sensitized to mm -hmm. how to react quickly to potential breaches, to incidents and to breaches. Um, you know, it, it, it could have taken months or years in the yeah. past to react to something like this but they're they're starting to to really be more efficient in their mm -hmm. ability to react and respond Absolutely. Um, that that to me is very positive it means the dwell time or well not the dwell mm -hmm. time that's the wrong term but it means that the opportunity for for attackers to compromise with with new exploits mm -hmm. especially zero day exploits that that opportunity is is shrinking because I think we learned from the likes of Heartbleed and Shellshock. They, they, mm -hmm. You know, those were, and they were very difficult to, to patch. And then we, of course, we had the print nightmare as well, um, which was another mm -hmm. major vulnerability for privilege escalation. So you can go easily from a local you know, user, standard user account up to local administrator account. And if you, if you can do that on a device, it's only a matter of time before an attacker can then elevate to full domain. So I think we've learned right. from those previous experiences in the past and that organizations, you know, especially for those public facing, um, that they really take them very seriously and they try to address it very quickly. One thing that was really interesting, even though we had the log4j, which was a major um, exploit vulnerability um, that happened, um, the one thing that was surprising for me was the web application attacks. Um, normally, I would typically see much more um, vulnerability exploits around that time, you know, or mm -hmm. basically uh, other types of attacks. Um, in that, it was basically predominantly 
it was credential uh, theft and, and, and using stolen credentials for web application tax. For me, that was a massive, uh, you know, kind of indicator about, you know, the importance of making sure that usernames and passwords are not the only security controls on those applications. Um, so that was a kind of major, it said 86% of all web application attacks involved the use of stolen credentials. And that's yeah, I mean, that's, it's, um, you know, one of the things that, that we've spoken about for several years, and it's funny how, how you can talk about these things and they make logical sense, but the movement to adopting them just trails behind. It's like, you know, credentials used by human human users, mm -hmm. but then you've got the service accounts that, that are used by the applications and the services. So we focus on protecting those those user accounts, but the service accounts kind of are the poor, poor stepchild. Mm -hmm. And I think it's 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 kind of a similar it's a, it's a similar thing here as well. I mean, there's there's always that, um, and, and the same with the API. You mentioned earlier about you know protecting your APIs. It's the poor yeah. stepchild, but they are massive attack surfaces. And and it's only a matter of time before they're you know before they they're exploited and and, and they take mm -hmm. advantage of them. And then we've got to scurry around and try and <laughs> try and patch those those gaps in in our defenses. But yeah, it's it, it is interesting for sure. Was it what, what about in, 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 they always break it down by you know um, not just they break it down by the classification patterns, which is always really interesting because that's what I dive into. Uh, but they also broke it down by uh, industries and regions, which they always do. And it was always mm. interesting to see which you know which industries are kind of the highest impacted, and also which regions or what type of patterns did they see you know in North America versus EMEA versus APAC. Was there anything in there that you find interesting? Um, I can't say I looked at that data um, in any great detail, but um, you know, in terms of industries, it's 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 historically for me been the typical things because a lot of these are financially oriented. So it's going to be the, the, you know, the, the, the fintech and it's going to be banks and it's good, uh, but also, you know, healthcare because historically they haven't been very good at, um, or, or they haven't necessarily mm -hmm. focused on, on, on their own internal IT. So they outsource a lot of that, of those capabilities. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, it's, um, I don't, I don't necessarily, I mean, did you spot any of that? I, I, uh, for me, it was def definitely what I did was interested in was the basically system intrusion was still from a regional perspective uh, for mm -hmm. North America and, and EMEA was kind of one of the top methods was getting access. And I think that's predominantly, uh, so when you get into system intrusion, um, right. either, you know, that's a typical a ransomware technique. Um, you get access, you uh, laterally move, you can access the right. data. So system intrusion is always kind of some of the kind of main areas. Then you get into if it's social engineering. Um, that's a pretext either for business, you know, financial fraud, business email compromise, or um, that, you know, social engineering can be a method, you know, that those are access brokers and they'll sell off the access to others sure. who will then come back and do system intrusion and then right. basically deploy ransomware. Um, so the kind of, that's some of the methods. It was interesting kind of looking at this, you know, public administration still is one of the top, you know, areas uh, of targeted. Um, you also get into, you know, information uh, companies are basically responsible for information and data. And then also the financial industries. Those are some of the top targeted industries. Um, so, you know, financial, it's what the money is. Target, yeah, you know, of course. Who's going to go after that? Uh, public uh, administration tends to be where basically you've got the least amount of security uh, in place, and therefore they become a target. Uh, definitely healthcare, you know, it's always basically, but I find that it's not the, the main kind of target because it can get into, you know, the basically ethical side of things. So you find mm -hmm. the criminals. Uh, we'll try to avoid them. Um, and then information companies, of course, you know, where, where the data is. Um, right. That's also the target as well. Uh, so for me, I think that's where you see the, you know, predominant, you know, manufacturing is also up there on the high end list. Uh, but that's typically what, you know, the attackers mm -hmm. will, will target after. Um, so those are some of the interesting things.
There's also, there's also, you know, if you read some of the stats, it's like, well, you, you, you've also, it, it's, a, it's an overused term, defense in depth, but you still got to focus on defense in depth. So one of the stats was that servers accounted for 85% of the assets in breaches. Um, user devices, workstations, and so on were, were 20%. Mm-hmm. So you think, oh, okay, well, I mean, if you look at a typical ransomware attack chain, it is going to be trying to fish or compromise the end user, take over their workstation, move from the workstation to the server network, and then laterally from server to server. But 85% of assets, servers accounting for 85% of their assets um, in breaches is a mm-hmm. big number. So so I think that it's important to to have that defense in depth where you're protecting both the the edge of your network, the workstations that our human users are uh, are, are using and that are a very easy entry point, um, largely speaking, especially working from home where our, our home network defenses are maybe not as tolerant <laughs> or, or as, sens- as, as strong as they would be in the office. But then protecting that that lateral movement, trying to prevent lateral movement from server to server to server. So, um, you know, that was a 85% of assets in breaches of servers. That was a big number. So yeah. we've got a, and again, ransomware, right? It's, it's the end of the day, ransomware is malware. And, and, you know, malware can only do its thing if it gets access to the systems in your network. And one of the best ways of, of preventing that is to protect those credentials. Absolutely. And what we tend to find, what, one of the things is that we, we tend to pr- protect the front door as much as we possibly can, uh, but we don't protect the inner doors and inner walls. Um, right. So that means that, you know, one attacker, we assume that we've got all of the, all, we're putting all our defenses on that perimeter, on, on that front door. And when the front door fails and the attacker gets inside, then that's where basically we are hoping in many organizations that usernames and passwords and lateral moves mm-hmm. that, you know, that they won't get that far. Um, but it's going to, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it is a defense in depth, uh, you know, methodology that organizations, you know, must adopt. And they have to assume that that front door, you know, security will fail that what happens when they get inside. And that's when it right. becomes really important to make sure you've got additional levels of protection, you know, recovery, you know, um, access control, segregation, a strong backup and recovery strategy. Um, mm-hmm. This is where you have, you know, network segmentation or the principle of least tri- privilege, which is that foundation to a right. zero trust strategy as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a key thing. I mean, least privilege, it's, I mean, we're all familiar with that principle, um, but the extent to which, um, you know, your your subscribing to something like zero standing privileges or zero trust that has its foundations in that it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's so very important. Um, but, um, you know, even, even if, even if you're taking the first kind of step in terms of, of maturity by vaulting away those privileged accounts, you've still got to not just be letting your administrators routinely check them out on a daily basis. You, you've got to be kind of leaving them there for emergencies and having them log in as themselves with, with minimum rights. That's the key to the least privilege. Absolutely. Just to, uh, getting, getting to zero persistent privilege or you know, least standing privileges where you just have enough to privilege to do what you need to do and it becomes on right. demand just in time. And that makes mm-hmm. it much more difficult for lateral moves or you know, for privilege abuse. Um, it does. It, it makes organizations much more visibility. Um, in the report itself, was there anything that you find missing or anything you would like to see uh, in, in much more detail or greater detail in the future? But again, I, I, there were two areas that, that I always think, um, you know, well, at least one area that's a massive attack surface, and that's the, um, that's the service accounts and, and the application mm-hmm. accounts side of the equation. So, so great. You've got a, this massive attack surface that, that is credentials. 
um, split between human-used credentials yeah. and, and application-used credentials. It, it's sprinkled in there, but it's not a huge focus. And yeah. certainly with APIs and stuff, uh, everything that's programmatic with DevOps, and, and it, it's becoming more and more of a problem. So some of the things that I, I talk to and I see our customers mm -hmm. talking about is, is, you know, we're developing applications for the cloud, for hybrid cloud scenarios, whatever. And, you know, we want to get away from, from using static credentials. So, so they go, okay, let's take them out of embedded code and maybe we'll vault them and then we can reach out mm -hmm. programmatically to the vault to actually get those credentials. But then they want to take it further because they're still static credentials. So, so they're looking to actually um, have the, the vault create ephemeral tokens so they can use those programmatically. And those are ephemeral by nature. They, mm -hmm. they dissolve after a certain amount of time. Um, you know, they have a short time span, they're more secure than IDs and passwords. I don't really find that represented much mm -hmm. in here. And as I mentioned earlier, the whole, you know, stolen cookies and session cookies being used to bypass credential based authentication mechanisms is another area that, that I would expect to see maybe more in, in, mm -hmm. you know, next year's with pass keys, as I said, and stuff like that. Absolutely. That's a really interesting point is, you know, they do not, you know, do that distinction between the human and, and the machine identities, you know, it's, right. which is kind of the, you know, the, the machine identities for me is, is all of those, uh, which are non-human, you know, it can be the service accounts, yeah. the application accounts, the API keys. Um, and it doesn't mm -hmm. get into that in, in detail. And it'll be actually interesting to see, um, is this abuse of, of human interactive credentials? Or was it abuse mm -hmm. of, um, you know, service accounts or session, you know, keys or session tokens? What was right. what was the distinguishing, you know, factor? Um, you know, it is interesting that there's a human element, yes. But what was the next step? What was the next attack chain that they used? Mm -hmm. um, so absolutely, that that's an interesting. Uh, for me, it was you know definitely the API was missing because that's a big area of of the automation, the behind the scenes uh, type of, of of security, uh, as well yeah. as the between the, you know the on premise and cloud. Um, but yeah, the, the, the machine identities is, is a key important part and it's becoming definitely a massive attack surface uh, for many organizations. Oh, for sure. Without a doubt. And, um, you know, MFA can play a role here as well, because if, if, if you've got a situation where a service account or a machine identity is being used in an interactive fashion, if it's available, it's not disabled for use by, by interactive login, you know, then MFA can, can, can kick in and, and block that in its tracks. A little bit harder to, to manage that, of course, mm -hmm. you don't want to do, try and do an MFA for a legitimate <laughs> service, service to service or app to app uh, authentication, but yeah. In those, case, you know, in those cases, you know, for me, absolutely, you know, is is they they shouldn't be interactive logon first. You know, one of the primary right. things. If, if it is interactive logon, that's that's a misconfiguration for me. Um, you know, in, in many cases, then you get into um, no one should know the credential of that. It should be vaulted away and protected and rotated on the you know when it's needed. Um, mm -hmm. And then you get into the next phase, which is it should be time based. You know, is there a window of opportunity that that should only be used for? Is it? Right. Uh, is it a backup job? Is it an automated task? Is it a discovery? You know, um, when should that run? Is it running once a day? Um, and should right. you limit the time? Um, so this is really kind of getting into is, is how to make sure we reduce that threat um, surface for those types of machine accounts. You, you've got to have some some good intelligence behind that. The lifecycle management of service accounts, because very often you find that a single service account may be leveraged by multiple applications, multiple machines. So if you arbitrarily go and rotate that password, you could break those other services, and then your availability is goes to hell in the handbasket. So, mm -hmm. so you've got to have some intelligence behind that, knowing how and when to rotate a shared um, sort of machine account. 
Um, but once you've got that sorted out, then you can really reduce that attack surface. You can make it very, very much harder for a threat actor mm -hmm. to leverage a credential that's probably expired, hopefully, by the time they come to try and, and, and compromise uh, and use it. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The dependency mapping across services is critical to, to making sure you, yep. as you don't break something. Um, but also you make it as secure as you possibly can. Uh, Tony, it's been fantastic having you on and, and, and you know, delving into <coughs> Thank you. You know, the details and the analysis um, of the latest Verizon data breach investigation report. Um, it definitely is one of the, you know, the main, uh, you know, top reports that we analyze. And it's also, you know, what the great thing is, it is an indicator that we are doing better. And mm -hmm. I will say that, you know, when, this, when we get these reports and it shows progression, it shows that organizations are taking the right step. It is time that we should celebrate. We should, you know, you know, everyone should pat ourselves on the back and say that we are doing something good, um, because in many many cases it is, you know, it, it, it sometimes it's sometimes you know we feel, is, you know, you're not getting better, you're not seeing the improvements. Right. Um, but this is, this is this is a report that actually is showing that we are doing better, um, mm -hmm. and we should keep the momentum. We shouldn't become complacent. Um, we should make sure that we're, you know, analyzing the report taking the key findings out of it that actually is making the difference. And all organizations should really you know, look to implement some of those good protections uh, that the report does highlight. Um, so absolutely, Tony, it's been fantastic having you on. And again, back, you know, back you. to the Verizon uh, DBR team, um, uh, you know, David, Philip, Alex, and Suzanne, you know, keep up the great work um, and, and definitely make sure that you know, uh, we're getting the analysis and we're, we're showing the right. progression and uh, what works and what doesn't work. So. Um, Only 11 more answer. months to wait for the next one, eh? <laughs> Absolutely, but we still have a lot of data to go through in this one. Uh, when you get this into the true. details, uh, there yeah. is a lot of still information to analyze. So there is. Uh, we'll definitely make sure that for the audience, um, we'll make sure that we get a link to the actually uh, DBIR report um, in the show notes. Uh, Tony, it's been a pleasure having you on as always. And for the yeah, audience... Thanks, Absolutely. And for the audience, you know, tune in every two weeks. The 401 Access Tonight podcast is here to really bring you, you know, highlights trends, leadership, um, you know, ideas and, and what's happening and, and bring some fantastic guests on the show to really share their experiences and ideas with you. So stay safe, take care, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.